Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. My guest this week is the esteemed David Hollander, Assistant Dean and Clinical Professor with the Tisch Institute for Global Sports at NYU. He is the recipient of the university's highest faculty honor, the Distinguished Teaching Award. He sits on the advisory boards for ESPNW, the Earl Monroe New Renaissance Basketball School, and the NYU Entrepreneurial Institute. And he holds his high school record for the most technical fouls in a season and a career. So we will not be talking about that record today, but we will be talking about his brand new book, How Basketball Can Save the World, 13 Guiding Principles for Reimagining What's Possible. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. That Joanne, you, you esteemed. That, esteemed. That's what you said. I threw that one in because you know I know you, and you are esteemed. <laughs> I thank you. So welcome to the podcast. Where I always like to start with just asking my guests where where are you from before we get into the book at all. Sure, I'm from a town in the northwest corner of the great state of New Jersey called Newton, Newton, New Jersey. Uh, that is where I hail from, like my father before me. <laughs> And you, you're from New Jersey and you admit to it. Actually, I live in New Jersey now too, so I have to admit to that. So, you know, I learned a lot in this book and not the least of which is that you're a very good writer. Um, in theory, basketball should be the sport that I know the most about given I went to both a high school and a college that did not have football teams. They only had basketball teams, but it's not saying much for me. But, you know, I was really intrigued with the argument that you make that basketball can change the world. So, let me start with asking you this first, is, is why this book and, and why now? I think it's time for new language and new sources of ideas. This book was the, it, 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 it came to me, um, uh, you know, maybe it started in my head when I was six years old. Um, maybe it was 15 years ago when I read Franklin Foer's um, How Soccer Explains the World, which was a, a, a kind of his uh, ledge that he stood on uh, to explain globalization using the World Cup that was happening at that time. Um, but really, around 2016, I was thinking quite sharply about how we've lived in a world with the same kinds of leaders, monarchs, captains of industry, religious types, lawyers, politicians, economists, who have come up with the same types of ideologies to make the world more efficient, more meaningful, more just, capitalism, socialism, communism, idealism, utilitarianism. And I felt like all we've done is progressively use different versions of those ideologies to find ourselves today in a, an increasingly more confused and conflicted world than ever. And I insist that we find new sources of ideas. And I know how basketball made me feel when I played it, when I connected with others, when I felt the peace and 
whole integration of self and right relations with the people who are out there. And I said, how could I translate this into a source of thinking that could make the world more meaningful, more just, more productive, more efficient? And, you know, my job is I'm paid to do that kind of thing, to to, <laughs> to come up with a thesis, to do research, build a syllabus. I did. It's called How Basketball Can Save the World. And I, this book is my is my argument. So this actually started as a course, is that right? And I believe you still teach the class? Yes, it's a very popular course uh, uh, at NYU. It, it, we, we, it, the mere announcement of the course drew international media attention. I all, all really? of a sudden, yeah, the AP uh, uh, wrote a piece on it, picked picked up by sixty major outlets, you know, Washington Post, uh, USA Today, CBS News called me in for an interview. Slam Magazine did a feature article, and that summer, they said, "Well, listen, you know, this is a crazy idea, Dave. You got to run a pilot." So I ran a pilot in the summer undergraduate course and for a non-required summer course we got 28 students like the world record um, from five different programs i mean you know sports business sure but tish dance um the gallatin program for individualized studies steinhardt and a kid from tulane who read about it and just had to be there wow from there we've gone to you know we're uh, 137 students and uh it's 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 been a it's been a really moving journey for everyone involved. Wow. Wow. And then the book came out. So the book came out of that and you got, the, how did you get the idea though to, uh, I, of course, because I don't know enough about basketball to even know that there was such a thing as a book written by James Nasmith. Am I saying that correctly? I hope uh, <laughs> yes. the 13 original rules of basketball. I didn't even know that thing. I didn't even know it existed because again, I'm, and I'm, and the title is so catchy that it's going to, I think it's going to attract so much attention that there'll be a lot of people like me who are like, really? I, I didn't know that that existed, well, but how'd you get this idea? Well, it's a, uh, 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 it, it, it's a provocation. Um, uh, you and I work with a lot of young people. And we know uh, that uh, despite what all kinds of claims uh, about this generation may be, they know things aren't right. Yes, they, they do. They, they're, they're pretty keen on, on, on what's not going to go forward and what needs to change. And they're just looking for that language, that social currency, that's for someone to present it to them in a way that's not the old ideas, not the mm -hmm. old language, which seems to be a stopping point. I'm, I'm, I'm less interested anymore in these ideas. You say the word capitalism and you're stopped short in a, mm -hmm. in a conversation. You're going to get opposition, people stop listening. You say the word socialism in a conversation, it's gonna stop short, people are gonna stop listening. Okay, I'm looking for something new. And this guy, James Naismith, uh, my 13 principles are an homage to just the fact that he came up with 13 rules for this new game that he happened to invent on December 21st, 1891, at a time in the world, well, in North America, called the Gilded Age, right. a time of unprecedented wealth inequality driven by 
technologists who had come up with all new ideas on how we should uh, run the world and, and, and make better jobs and make better lives, which of course didn't exactly turn out that way. In fact, it, 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 it exacerbated the wealth inequalities. It, it became a time of great monopolists and, and, and abuse. Sound familiar? Um, uh, and it was a time of unprecedented immigration. Mm-hmm. New, new people were coming to this country and the resentment towards those new people, plus the trauma in the country of just coming out of the Civil War, the Jim Crow laws, the decimation of Native Americans. All of this was the, the I would call it the local vibration let alone what was happening in the rest of the world, the local, the Chinese exclusion laws, the 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 local vibration that this guy James Naismith, an immigrant himself, traumatized by the loss of his parents at a very young age, an intellectual misfit, a wanderer. He 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 went to divinity school, and they said, "Okay, James, now you can be a minister, and now you can do good, just like you want to." It's like, I think there's something else that could even get the message across more. And in that global vibration, in that zeitgeist, a marketing term, (laughs) he created this thing. And I believe it was the manifestation of the model of what he thought the world could be in this game. And I extrapolate these 13 principles as as a philosophy of basketball. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating as I'm listening to you. It's there has been so much conversation drawing that analogy between what's happening now and the Gilded Age. So, and I happen to be a fan of the Gilded Age on on HBO, which is a <laughs> wonderful show, which which highlights that. And in fact, my grandparents came over at that time, mm-hmm. and I joked with one of my cousins. I said, "But you know, we weren't living in those houses. We, our grandparents were the ones that were." We're cleaning the houses. And there was that that feeling of otherness there um, too. It, it wasn't necessarily at that time because of skin color. It was just because you were you were Greek or you were Italian that no one messed with each other. So it's kind of interesting to just to see that and and that in the conversation, because you wrote about that a lot in the book. Now, see, so one of the things that you wrote about is that shared physical space is where empathy develops. Can you talk about that? Because that is something about basketball on this analogy. You know, I I think that so many sports teach you wonderful things. So mm-hmm. many. Uh, and I do them and I consume them. But I think basketball especially is good right now at solving 21st century problems of humanity because of the human size of the game. It is different. It is different in size. The full elongation of the game is a smaller playing space intentionally than the big field sports. It forces you in that small space where there's only five people and all of them play every position instantly changing from offense to defense. There's no new team to come in and do defense, a new team to do offense. In that construct, you can't help but see the other person physically up close. And because you see the other person, you see all of them and you begin to think about them and them about you. 
immediately, fluidly, constantly. You can call it mirror neurons. There is a, a neurological thing that has been studied. We know that emotional intelligence, social intelligence. But what's going on is what was meant to go on between people. We're supposed to spend time in space with each other. Mm -hmm. We are here on this planet trying to figure out how to share space with each other. And the only way you're going to understand how to do that, the only way you're going to get past having this notion of somebody that you've never met from some other land or tribe or culture you've not a part of is to be with them. Basketball insists it, it, it's an requirement of the game that you mm -hmm. share that physical space. And, and, and that's, that's where empathy is created. That's where peace is developed. That's where all kinds of, and it's the opposite of Zoom. It's the opposite of mm -hmm. the separation digitally, and uh, which is a tool and it's an amazing technology, but it doesn't do what in-person does. No, it doesn't. And as you're saying that, even that the idea of shared space, but being present in that space, you know, because as you were saying that, I had this vision of myself standing on the subway platform. I'm sharing a lot of space with people, but there's no connection uh. because everyone's got their heads in their phones these days on top of everything else. It was never, you know, the most, wasn't the place you were right. going to sit there and chit chat with strangers, but now it's even, it's even more distant because people are not, they're not, they're present with their phones. They're not present with themselves. And what's very, going on around them. You're so right. I mean, it's such a basic 21st century problem. You know, you walk on the streets of New York City, walk up out of the steps of the subway. People don't know how to be a body with other no. bodies. Uh, we've gone so far from that. And you say, well, what's what's the problem? What's so, what's so bad about that? What's so bad about that is... All the misunderstanding, all the inability to really understand the social cues of other folks and to really begin that. It, it, it's where it all begins. It's the first principle of basketball. It sounds very trite. sounds very simple cooperation. But as you say, it's not really happening. No, it's not happening. It's not happening at all. In fact, um, on a related note, I've now I'm starting all of my classes with making everybody collectively put the do not disturb button on their phones, because I started to notice last semester that people had their laptops open to take notes, the phone next to them, and then the alerts come in and I could see eyes darting. And it's like, you know, we have to practice being present because you're not going to get a, they're not going to get the most out of their class, but we don't get the most out of ourselves. Yeah, and this is of ourselves. we you know this this has been going on since this all Sherry Turkle from Harvard and 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 all these folks. This is not a this is not against technology. This is for humanity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you talk about Wilt Chamberlain in the book, which yeah. I remember my brother talking about Wilt the Stilt, if I'm not mistaken, is what yeah. he was called. Yeah. And you wrote you wrote that his legacy is showing, and this is a quote, what's possible when we open our minds to new ways of creating solutions, models of leadership, and wider appreciation for different styles of achievement, which I believe is principle number three, balance of force and skill. Can you talk about that? When James Naismith invented basketball, he wanted to make it a nonviolent sport in opposition to the, the, the full contact sports that were kind of dominant 
at that time, but also he needed to have an indoor sport on a hard uh, indoor floor uh, uh, and, and that wouldn't injure uh, people. Um, so he first said, hey, we're not going to run with the ball, rule number one, and that way no one has to chase you and tackle you. Rule number two, you got to pass it. That's the way you advance it. Um, rule number three was I'm going to create a goal unlike any other goal in any other sport. And that goal will be elevated high up, which will, hey, if you've got more power than someone else, if you've got more speed than someone else, you still got to be under control. You still have to have a, have skills that stop you and 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 slow this thing down and there's an arc to the ball. And that opened this game to a great number of types of bodies, types of athletic abilities, which stands for a principle, the balance of force and skill, of we need to recognize all different types of talent. You know, the, the, the great book, Quiet, which says we're missing maybe a third, maybe a half of us in leadership roles who are well, we don't, we're not the loud ones. We're not the, 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 you know, gushing with charisma. We're not the handsome ones. We're not the tall ones. We have other skills and we're, we're, we're still trapped in these old archetypes. Will Chamberlain, well, many people thought he was this giant. He was, he was seven foot one. He was taller than he was. Many people thought he was this Hercules. He was, he was powerfully strong. But what they didn't understand was he was the future of basketball. He was incredibly skillful. He had developed something called the finger roll, which was this wonderful finesse shot, the fadeaway jump shot. All these things are now the model of the modern game. Everyone's a, a six foot eight, seven foot can do it all. I believe this is a human resources principle. I believe this is a, a, a college admissions principle. This is a talent uh, evaluation, talent scouting principle. We've got to see more kinds of people. We've got to have greater inclusion in who we choose to do the important things, to do all the things. You also wrote that none of us are just one thing, which of course I love on so many levels because if anyone knows anything about me, I'm always saying that, but you're referring this now to principle number four, which is positionless in basketball. Can you, can you talk about how you drew that analogy in there? Uh, the modern game of basketball, the modern state, the, the way people like to talk about it today is positionless basketball. That's what players play. They play that. That's what the best teams do, which means that there's no more assigned roles exactly. Uh, someone's the center or someone's the forward, which used to be these kind of rigid positions in basketball. But even the guy who invented it never meant that to be. He meant it to be a positionless game. Explicitly, he stated anybody could touch the ball anytime and do anything with it. To me, positionlessness is the future of work. It's the future of your career development. Mm -hmm. It's the future of your, your, your career inside your organization. What I mean by that is we know today, <laughs> today that students will graduate from university, undergraduate and graduate, and will likely change not just their job, 
four to six times, but maybe entire fields because those fields will become obsolete or because they will want to go into something else, but mostly because the world is rapidly changing all the time and, and, and entire industries are rapidly changing. And you know, this is the premise of the program that you and I are so fond of, Real World, mm-hmm. which says the real skill that we need to teach is to learn how to learn, is to solve a problem that's brand new, new facts and circumstances, collaboratively with other people. And that's the skill that you'll be practicing and improving upon the rest of your life. Couldn't you? You know, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, I could talk about it forever. It's a powerful principle. And it's funny, Joanne, he sees on it. So many people read the book and that's the one they, it's one of the hot principles um, because everybody says to themselves, I'm not one thing. I'm, I I don't want to be trapped in a silo. I, I, I don't believe in, in collegiate majors. Um, what I believe in is that there used to be an old way of teaching that 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 tied to the industrial age that said, okay, we're going to teach you a certain thing and it's going to somehow tie to a career that's going to last you 30, 35 years. It doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. So what who what is the point? What are we doing? What we're doing is we're trying to develop minds. We're trying to develop human beings who can walk out in the world and then have a wonderful life and explore all the all the things that they are. That's that's the world we're trying to get to, and I actually think we're 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 in it now. That that's the pushback. That's the the quiet resignate. The what do they call it? quiet quitting? Quiet great quitting. Resignate. All these things are, yeah. Th- these are the growing pains of a world that's saying, "I'm not just one thing. We are all positionlessness. We are all positionless." Uh, yeah, and it's something that I mean, it was certainly drilled into my head at a young age that whatever I got my degree in was what I was going to do for forever which turned out to not be the truth because I apparently was very much ahead of this trend of being positionless because um, I've done so many things and I yeah. keep on adding on something else. Uh, but it's but it's still in there. I still see it with my students. You know, they get and you get you can get stuck sometimes because you can wind up someplace that you don't want to be. And I, I think generally life's too short to to do that for too long to understand that there are other aspects of yourself than just that yeah. one thing. And, you know, we we actually know it's there's a great book called Range by Jeffrey Epstein. He, I have he not read that yet, but I have, it's on my list. It's I, I, I think he's great. I think he's wonderful. He he started out to, the sports gene was his, his first bestseller. And he 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 understands that. The people who win the Nobel Prizes, the people who who who, who come up with the cures, the people who win the MacArthur genius, uh, they're people who have range, meaning They've studied, experienced, done all kinds of things. And then when they go deep on something, when they're, they're, they're challenged to solve a problem deep in one area, they bring an extraordinarily versatile and wide toolbox. Whereas folks who've just studied that one thing only bring a very limited kind of like what happened yesterday toolbox. Um, and... It, it, it's really important to and 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 to me that's just like a a slice of what the world is missing in in the happiness and productivity of our 
of our people. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's so true. And as as I, you know, the conversation lately is is so much on AI, and I don't want to talk about Chat GPT too much, but that conversation has been there now. Chat, chat, chat. And it's a way, another way of replacing people. You know, we can create content with chat GPT. So this whole idea of exploring these different aspects of yourself, I think, becomes so much more important because there are there are technologies that are going to replace certain jobs. If if you if your only skills are to do the job of what a robot can do, then what value do you bring to the world and to yourself? Well, and this is a really, this is such an important point you're making because at the end of the day, when people are are, are terrified and arguing or, or excited about ChatGPT or excited about metaverse or excited about any of these kinds of things, to me, the, the, the answer to that discussion is toward what end? What's the point? What are we hoping to get from this as a human race? Mm-hmm. And if 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 the answer is well, you know, this would be really good because it'll it'll actually free us to have a life of 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 labor uh, of leisure and health and enjoyment and and things like that. Oh, I'm down for that. My thirteen principles here that come from basketball. To me, they're the guide to say, okay, do we need GPT? All right. Well, if it if it helps us be more positionless, if it helps us be more global, if it helps us be more gender inclusive, you know, these are I'm, I'm reading out some of these principles. Then I say, okay, let's use it toward that. But if if the only thing it's good for is to um, increase our GDP <laughs> or increase some cor- you know corporate profit line. And I'm not against profit lines if the profit is in service of a basic value system that is moving us forward as as a as a as a world. Wow, fantastic. I love what you just said. Okay, so here we go. Let's go a couple of more here. You also say that loneliness, which is another topic that's on everyone's mind these days, is an acutely 21st century mm-hmm. issue. And that principle number 11. Mm-hmm. Basketball is the anecdote. Can you talk about that, please? It is a, an acute 21st century problem, mm-hmm. loneliness and isolation. And I believe basketball is the antidote. I Let me give you one illustration, and I'll go backward from that illustration. There was a moment in time, and a lot of people forget about it now, um, where we were required to distance from each other, mm-hmm. socially distance. They said, you can't go near anybody, or you're going to die. <laughs> maybe probably could be we don't know there was no vaccine at that time there was it was just like something crazy is happening everybody lock yourself in <laughs> don't go near anybody <laughs> and there was there was one thing that people would not stop doing and that was they kept going to the to the the the, the togetherness space of public basketball courts so much so that the, the the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, Andrew Cuomo was the governor of New York, and all over the world, it was a problem. They made public service announcements. They said, stop going to the basketball court. Stop playing basketball. People wouldn't listen, and they had to take down the rims. Wow. 
Now, why, why did people feel they needed to do that? It's because of the healthy connection that people feel when they go to that space. Basketball does that. Basketball stands for this idea that as soon as I, there's this great Mojave poet, Natalie Diaz. She played in two Final Fours. Um, she won, she's a MacArthur genius, Pulitzer Prize winner. She said, what happens when I go to a basketball court is I walk into a group of strangers and all of a sudden, who I don't know, and all of a sudden, fluidly, instantly, continuously, we have to start knowing each other. Bessel van der Kolk, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who has written the wonderful, you know, it's like 312 weeks straight on the bestseller list, The Body Keeps the Score. He's redefined our understanding of trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. Came to my class. The guy never, you know, it's hard to get him to come somewhere. He's really high demand. But he says that one of the ways to help folks who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which he claims is a more normal condition than people realize, more of us are walking around with this type of difficulty than, than you may understand, it's very hard for them. They're living a life of searing isolation. They're living a life, they, 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 they experience the world as if they're, even though the threat happened long ago, as if it's happening now. Mm -hmm. which makes everything feel like a threat, which makes it difficult to connect. What helps people like that connect to feel less isolated, feel less lonely? Well, he says group rhythmic activities like, like a group sing or dancing or drum circle, or he explicitly says basketball. Mm -hmm. It is that thing, that small space where I see you, where I start thinking about you and you're thinking about me and I feel like I'm part of something. What a wonderful thing to feel. And today, it, the statistics, I didn't make them up. The statistics show that in, in everywhere from China to London to, 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 to Japan to all of the United States, Loneliness is a terrible thing, particularly among young girls. They have mm -hmm. terrible uh, uh, thoughts. Um, whatever the whatever the contributing factors are, uh, 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 so many of the 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 blog posts and and uh, sorry, social media posts that we find for the folks who are doing these active shootings, they're lonely. They're feeling isolated. They're mm -hmm. they're 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 totally disconnected and can't find a way. The world needs to make it a priority, a public health priority, to find antidotes to loneliness. And mm -hmm. this is a basic guiding principle of basketball that I I put forward, and and I, I think is is crucial uh, for for mm -hmm. for this moment and for the next two generations. You know, as you were saying that, and you were talking about social media, which is something I, you know, I do teach it, so I know more about it than some days I even want to know. But there's that, whereas it it really, it served as such a lifeline during the pandemic, and it's a way to connect, but it's a false sense of connection at the same time. 
And, you know, it's, it's kind of like when I'm teaching marketing now anymore, I'm going back to that. These are all just tools. You know, the basics of that have not changed. We're still humans trying to connect with other humans. And, but there's, you know, for many people, there's been this, and I don't even know how it happened, but that the tools are more important or the technologies. And so this, that sense of disconnect that happens, because it is a false sense of connection on social media. It's, you know, you think, you know, these people, but do you really, you know, is that, and there's still something about in person, like right. we're doing this obviously via Zoom right now. Um, would it be more fun to be in, in a studio someplace? Sure, absolutely. It's actually, now of course, I know you already, so that helps a little bit. Well, and, and 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 this segues into this other principle in the book called Sanctuary. And I'm not talking mm. about like immigration sanctuary. <laughs> I'm talking about spaces where people can remove from this digital oppression uh, from the constant algorithmic, you know, counting, commodifying, uh, geolocating, uh, updating. I, I, two things that are encouraging to me and, and they're in line that I read just this past week was NDPT and DP consumer uh, company did a study uh, on the the toy industry, and they said the fastest growing segment of consumers in the toy industry are called kid adults. They're adults who are buying toys. They're <laughs> buying toys because they want to play. They want to play because they've had it with the, the you know the crashing in on their lives of what you've just what you're talking about. This this, this false sense. It's not real. It's not fulfilling. Um, it's empty calories of human connection. Kid adults, they're buying toys. The second interesting thing I saw, you may have read New York Times about a month ago. There's a group of teenagers in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. They formed a club. They call themselves the Luddites. Yes. They meet I... in Prospect Park. And the only requirement of the club is can't bring your phone. No phones. These are the teenage. Everybody's like, kids, we got to get their phones. They, they won't let go of their phones. Actually, something's breaking. I, I agree. Changing. I agree. And I, and I, I, I come to this principle. I, I say it's a basketball principle because when you, all the great books and all the great players and all the great things, when you when you talk to basketball players from the time they're very young, it's true of me. It's true of all my, all the, the of every level. They say, "Why do you love basketball so much? What is it?" And once you get past that, they wanted to be a pro or they wanted to make a lot of money or whatever. It was that it was a space they went to, mm-hmm. to feel safe, to feel uh, 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 greater than, to feel uh, elsewhere, to feel this wonderful, pure sense of play that is so necessary, so nourishing. It's, it's, it's a, a basic human need. It allows us to, to 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 explore the range play the explore the, the the range of being a human being the, all the vices and virtues the you know cowardice courage grace under pressure teamwork leadership failure without the consequences of real life hunger death heartbreak um that's why play is really important basketball has always served as that space and like kind of <laughs> i believe governments have to say now hey Loneliness is a a public health priority. We got to play spaces that are free from 
all this other stuff, all this surveillance. Um, we really need those more than ever. It will stabilize our humanity. It will allow us to see each other and do you know all these wonderful things. And people want it. People are craving it. They're trying to figure out where to go to get it. Kid adults. I love that. I love what you said there about places where there's no surveillance. You know, I, I, I often use my story with my students of when I was, I was, guess it was, I was still at WXTO selling country music radio and they get, they all, they got us car phones before we had, you know, mobile hand devices. And I was so angry about it because I was a salesperson. I liked the freedom. I didn't want them to find me. I was perfectly happy going to a payphone. I didn't want people to have to be able to catch me all the time. And now we're at this place where people just expect you to respond immediately and not having that surveillance. There was something fun about it. Like, well, nobody really knows where I am. Oh, you'll find me. I'll come back. It's nothing terrible's happened. I'm just off. <laughs> well, what what's fun about it? And that's exactly, it is fun about it. It's the fun of being mm-hmm. alive, being a human being on yeah. this earth, which which gives you the freedom to explore, to adventure, to go somewhere you haven't or be someone you haven't been before, which is precisely the opposite of the algorithmic hive mind, mm-hmm. which is all these analytics, which feed back to you about who you were yesterday, all the things you did in the past, all the things that are going on in some, some very l- limiting construct of what we are it's almost like a trap like a cult i i write in the book i found this wonderful story about some of the only there's a very small group some of the only people in jonestown who didn't drink the kool-aid were members of the cult who were on a basketball team wow phenomenal story and they somehow, because basketball became this refuge from a sanctuary from the cult. And so when Jim Jones called him up and said, Hey, you guys, I know you're finishing up a game, but you got to come back here now and drink the Kool Aid. <laughs> they knew what they were being asked to do. They said, No. Basketball players said, No. I, I, I talk a great deal in that. That chapter, that 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 principal sanctuary about Shoshana Zuboff, who is the the digital rock star, the Harvard professor who who talks about the surveillance economy and 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 how she is insisting, and I I phrase it slightly different, I say on a on a right to sanctuary, on a constitutional right, a fundamental right, it doesn't have to be the US Constitution, it's a global right to our own experiences like you said to be running around in the world and go where you want to go and be who you want to be and nobody knows it nobody knows it and and that's that's okay <laughs> like that's 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 actually where where we where we do stuff that is remarkable in yeah, that space. no absolutely absolutely i i was shopping yesterday and i bought a a sweater and the next thing you knew and I kid you not, and they'll tell you that those phones are not picking up everything. But all of my all of my social media fills, feeds were filled with similar yeah. items. I mean, it was a striped sweater, so it wasn't like it was just like a black shirt. It was, and it was all, and I'm like, this is just, and it's hard to get away from it. So 
but I love the idea of sanctuary. So I have one more um, little quote here, and then I'll go into my lightning round because I could talk to you about this all day. Um, this this one thing, one thing, one of the many wonderful things you wrote in here. In life as in, as in basketball, we often must change our position, fluidity, and without warning to meet changing circumstances. I just love that. I think it's a, be a nice way to end this if you could just talk a little bit about it, what you meant. I'm analogizing to something in the game of basketball called the fast break. The fast break was invented by an African-American coach named John McClendon. John McClendon, who was the first African-American physical education student at the University of Kansas, whose teacher and advisor was the inventor of basketball, James Naismith. And Naismith had been growing tired of the organization, the commercialization, the, 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 you know the what happens to things when people like them in America they 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 people want to co-opt them and sell them and organize them and he and McClendon sat in a park one day and watched kids playing basketball kids no coach nobody you know, uh, in charge and he said Naismith to McClendon you see what's happening here and McClendon said yeah he said the the kids attack on defense and then they attack on offense and Naismith is like, that's it. That's the game. See you later. <laughs> and what McClendon, an African-American, an African-American living under, you know, great inequality, a great lack of freedom and access, took this idea and said, this is what the game is meant to be. He ceded control to the players. He said, I'm going to teach you about where the space is in the court. I'm going to teach you, you know, how to fill the lanes, how to understand, how to, how to, how to confront a given situation. But after that, you will figure it out. You're going to run up and down the court and it'll always be different. Someone different will be on your side or behind you or in front of you. And the idea is to solve that problem together with other people. That is exactly what life is like. Mm -hmm. It is changing rapidly for you and I, for our students. And we don't get to slow down, call a timeout, go to the huddle, step out of the batter's box, ask the coach, hey, man, what should I do right now? Because oftentimes there is no time. Mm -hmm. You must... In the instant, as well as in the continuum of your life with other people, change, adapt, figure it out. Um, it's a basketball principle. Uh, it, it's different than other sports that way with the, you know, the great Bill Russell, the greatest basketball player, and certainly in terms of winning, which is the point, said the game moves so fast that even by the time you put a semicolon in the sentence, I'm on to the next thing. It's not so different in a conversation, in a meeting, in a in a uh, 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 a family situation, a relationship. We 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 can't always go consult the manual, and the manual oftentimes is obsolete and, and inapplicable. <laughs> We've got to you know. Th there's nothing left but truth in advertising and marketing. You and I are are know this. But it 
it, it, it goes to the large point of this is how we walk the earth <laughs> as a person. Wow. Well, I think that is a terrific way to end this portion of the podcast. <laughs> I, I do like to finish up with a little lightning round of questions. Um, and I'm, I was going to take this one out because I already know the answer, but I'm not because I always ask it. Favorite social network? None. That's right, folks. That's <laughs> right, folks. No, no matter how many I times no, I, I tell this no. guy to get on LinkedIn, he is not there yet. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm biologically, I'm, I'm biologically incapable. Something people would never guess about you. One of my favorite shows on television. Uh, my wife hates when I say this in public. Uh, is the show Naked and Afraid? Okay. Um, I, I don't know. Is that a series? I, that, my next question is the last series you binged. So I'm not sure that's a series. I've never heard of the show, so I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's a it's a series. I didn't binge it. I've been watching it for years since its inception. Um, so whatever, everyone. But the last uh, show I binged, the last series I binged, um, was uh, uh, the Bear on Hulu. Yeah, a lot of people it. have been talking about that. Yeah. Um, a food you can't live without? Barbecue. Barbecue. And what you miss most about pre-COVID life? The fearless, hesitationless mm -hmm. gathering of people. Yep, I'm right there with you. And what motivates you to get up in the morning? My family. Oh, I had a feeling you were going to say that. Okay. So, um, well, you can't really find you online, but I will put all the links to the book, which um, when we air this will be officially out there. The air, the publication date is? February 7th. Um, uh, I, I do have an Instagram at HowBasketballCanSaveTheWorld.com, the website, HowBasketballCanSaveTheWorld.com. But it, yeah, that, 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 that's still the internet, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It, it is. It is still. It is still the internet. Um, but David, thank you so much for spending time. I, I think this book is going to be a huge success. I really enjoyed reading it. Joanne, I I have so much respect for you. You know that, and I'm I I'm so grateful for you having me on this podcast of yours. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note. Info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember... Whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there. <laughs>